Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leaf, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm joined by Ben McIntyre, the best-selling author of several true, true spy stories, of which the latest is The Spy and the Traitor, just out in paperback, and it's the story of Oleg Gordievsky. Welcome, Ben. Lots of spies, as you say in, the, in your book, don't make all that much difference, and Gordievsky is one of the very few who did. Yes, I think that's right. I mean... It seems an odd thing to say, given how much I've written about spies, that actually they don't actually turn the world. But on the whole, if spies, if they're good, they may make us a bit safer. They kind of oil the wheels of traditional diplomacy, but they don't usually kind of strategically alter the way states behave. Oleg Gordievsky's material was, was different. I mean, there are occasions. There are occasions during D-Day. There are deceptions. There are, there's Bletchley Park. But I'm not, I'm not going to exaggerate the unimportance of spies. Agency, exactly. But Oleg's stuff really was, it really was going straight to Thatcher and Reagan. And it was altering, you can tell, you can see the, the impact that it was having on policy. And he really did, I think, pave the way for the, well, was one of the factors in paving the way for the beginning of the end of the Cold War. And Gordievsky himself, you know, what was it that made you think, right, I'm going to come back and do this story? And how did you get the access? Because you've obviously spoken to Oleg Gordievsky very extensively, as you say. In your I'll say, I think you know, I've you... trotted up the number of hours I'd spent in his unbelievably hot sitting room. I think it was about 140 hours in all. Yes, I got to know him very well. In fact, funnily enough, uh, The Spectator has a role in this because, of course, Oleg used to, used to review books for The Spectator. And he also used to review for us at the Times, my day job. So actually his finding him at that point was quite easy. His email was in our Rolodex. Um, <laughs> it's not there anymore, I can tell you, because since Skripal, you know, the security surrounding him is very different. But, but I, I actually approached him on an earlier book. He knew, he knew a, a good friend of Kim Philby, Nicholas Elliott, subject of an earlier book that I wrote. And so I, I contacted him for that reason. And we became, we became friends. Why did I think it needed retelling? Well, because although Oleg wrote his own memoir in 1996 called Next Stop Execution, that was written under very constrained circumstances. And there was, there was a lot to the story that he couldn't say. And actually, in fairness, quite a lot that he didn't know about how the case had been put together. So, so there were two elements, really. One was that I had full access to Oleg, I mean, who was incredibly generous with his time and has a prodigious memory. I mean, he's a wonderful interviewee because he can tell you exactly what it smelled like in the basement of the Lubyanka in 1962. And when he tells you, when you ask him the same question three years later, he says the same thing. Yes, as you describe it, you know, when he's dumping information to his, his handlers, he... He just has. Is it, was that trained? Was it just? Was yeah, it was partly trained at the Red Banner Institute outside um, outside Moscow, the KGB training school, also known as School One Hundred and One, which I rather liked. Yes. Um, <laughs> it has a certain resonance. But it, um, yeah, no, he was taught. He was taught to memorise large screes of information, and that was sort of what he brought back in a way as his diary when he came to Britain. But and the other thing that I got that I was incredibly lucky with, really, Sam, was that I got. I was allowed to have access to all the case officers who, who were involved in this case. And MI6 usually doesn't do that. I mean, they are extremely stern about former officers talking about operational matters. And Why do you think they let you? I mean, one of the things that surprised me, I think you said in the acknowledgments that you got to them through Oleg. Yes, and that's I right. sort of would kind of assume that a lot of them, you know, Oleg wouldn't quite know who they were or, or how to contact them Well, no, going interestingly, forward. actually, he remains very close to a lot of his former case officers, and they all, of course, knew each other. So it was a kind of spreading operation, really. I mean, I started with, with a couple of them and then eventually... But, but the truth is, it wouldn't have been doable if MI6 hadn't 
agreed to let them speak. I, I was never told formally that that is what they did, but, and I was given no formal help by, by the intelligence service at all, I, nor did I want it. But they clearly at some point told the former case officers, OK, you can, you can talk about this. Why now. do you think they did that? Because it was a huge success. I think it's so pretty clear. It was pretty good. Clear, well, partly, and also they're very proud of it, which they have good reason to be. I mean, it was. But look, I mean, if it hadn't worked out the way that it worked out, I wouldn't have written this book, and we would never have heard of Oleg Gordievsky because he would have been interrogated and shot in the Lubyanka. Yeah, you. I mean, for for those listeners who maybe you know are, are millennial listeners who aren't so sure who Gordievsky was, can you kind of give kind of quick sketch of, mm. you know, who he was and what he did. Well, one of the extraordinary things about Gordievsky was that he was born into the KGB. I mean, his father was a KGB officer, his brother was a KGB officer, he was brought up in a KGB compound, he ate KGB food I mean, for the first 25 years of his life. Well, so no he was... he turned against them. <laughs> Actually, I think it was rather good compared to everything else that the Soviets were eating. But so they, um, uh, you know, so he was always going to join the KGB. And what makes it extraordinary was that he sort of turned against them so radically and so completely. He's one of the very few, almost purely ideological spies I've ever come across. He, he, he believes that what he was doing was a moral imperative. Um, and you don't get that very often. I mean, spies have all sorts of different motives. Well, he actually declined to be paid, didn't he? Oh, absolutely. With, yeah. And he's, he is not a wealthy man. He lives in, in very sort of humble circumstances in a, a perfectly nice house. But, but, you know, he does not live in luxury. He's not living off the fat of the land. And in many ways, he's a captive of history. I mean, he, he, you know. But to, to measure what he actually did, at the age of about 20, Oleg began to question the system. And that was partly because he had access to Western newspapers. He was studying languages at the, uh, the very elite Moscow uh, School of International Relations. And he began to be- believe that he was on the wrong side. It was almost as simple as that. I mean, there were two vital international events that really began to turn him. One was the building of the Berlin Wall, which he personally witnessed while in East Germany. Um, and the other was the crushing of the Prague Spring in 1968, when, uh, when the Soviets sent in the tanks to destroy the the nascent reform movement under Alexander Dubček. And Oleg was absolutely scandalised by that. And indeed, interestingly, still is. I mean, in his mid-80s now, he still talks about 1968 as being an ap- a moment of absolute sort of eye-opening horror for him. So, so I think those two events happened. There are lots of other elements in, in the makeup of these sorts of people. Though. I mean, you know, there is a certain amount of hubris. There is a certain amount of adventure. He enjoyed living a double life. Spies frequently do. Um, I think he enjoyed the danger in lots of ways. And it was supremely dangerous what he was doing. He, he was really recruited by MI6 while in Copenhagen over a long, long courtship, really. It took a very long time. He began to hand over reams of really high-grade material, identifying really all the Soviet assets in Scandinavia, all the people on the left of, of various political parties and also in the security service and so on, who had been recruited by, by the KGB, which is, of course is gold dust to any counterintelligence service. And then when he finally managed to get himself deployed to Britain, where he would end up as the designated head of the KGB here, here in London. Yes, not for all that long. <laughs> not for all that long. In fact, he never quite got to take up the post. But, but that was really, I mean, when he, when he quite literally was about to get the keys to the safe. And then he was producing... As I said, this, this amazing level of information, I mean, right from deep in the Kremlin, he was able to tell the West not just what the KGB was thinking uh, or what it was doing, but what it was thinking of doing. You know, so they were, they were, they were at least two steps ahead. 
And it had a dramatic effect. I mean, the KGB had been seen for a very long time as a kind of 10-foot monster, something that was sort of almost impossible to tackle. Actually, what Oleg proved was that it was corrupt, inefficient, spectacularly drunk quite a lot of the time, that it didn't, you know, that it didn't function as this sort of terrifying, all-seeing, sprawling octopus. Well, we had this kind of post-Philby mm. paranoia about mm. it. And it's very interesting how he kind of mm. punctured paranoia on both sides. You know, well, there was a very, quite funny in retrospect meeting that took place when Oleg first got here from, from Moscow, got, got to Britain. And there was a meeting between with MI5 and MI6. And MI5 was sort of rubbing its hands, thinking, marvellous, we're going to catch all these new filbies that are deep in the, in the British establishment, you know, we're going to root them all out. And Oleg said, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, there really aren't very many. Uh, there were very few. I mean, the KGB record in Britain had been pretty lax. Um, so MI6 left feeling rather pleased, and MI5 left the conversation feeling rather, rather sort of let down by the whole thing. They'd been looking forward to some proper spy hunting. Yeah. Well, there was Agent Boot, of course. There was Agent Boot, God bless him. Um, yes, Michael Foote. Um, I rather love the idea of Major Petrov, who was his, the first uh, person to, to, to identify Agent Boot, thinking, ah, oh, we'll think of a very good name for Michael Foote. We will call him Boot. Yeah. It's, a very funny, it's a very funny English joke. Um, what was Michael Foote? Well, it's interesting. I mean, when the book first came out, there was a big sort of brouhaha over... Whether, I mean, what, this is what Michael Foote did. Over a period of nearly 20 years, he met regularly with the KGB. Um, he met with something like two or two dozen times, more in fact, and he was paid a considerable amount of money, the equivalent today of about £35,000. So not insignificant. What did he do with the money? Well, he spent it, it appears, most of it, it's impossible to tell because the accounts are so weird. Um, but he probably used it to prop up Tribune magazine, the, 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 the socialist magazine. But he may have, you know, he did, certainly didn't spend it on his patio. They're running a political magazine. It's <laughs> a fool's errand. <laughs> fool's errand, and it's going to cost a lot of KGB gold. So, um, but, uh, you know, so what does that make Michael? I mean, Michael Foote was taking direction. There's pretty little doubt about that. You know, he was, he was listening very closely to what he was being told by these KGB officers who were giving him quite privileged information about what was happening inside the Soviet Union, saying, you know, you might like to write about this, you might like to give a speech about this. So was he being directed up to a point? He would have claimed that he was simply, I suspect, making contact with, you know, other people on the left around the world and that you had to keep, you know, avenues open to Moscow and we couldn't shut them down. I mean... What it doesn't, you know, when it came out, the right said, this is proof that Michael Foote was always a spy. Well, he wasn't a spy and he wasn't a traitor. He, you know, in 1968, after the Prague Spring, he dropped these contacts immediately and never started them again. Did he know they were KGB? Well, if he didn't know they were KGB, he was being amazingly naive. And the KGB got useful stuff out of him. They, you know, they were learning about what was going on inside the Labour Party, what was happening in the TUC. There's actually a very good expression in Russian, um, uh, coined by Lenin, uh, which literally means useful idiot. Um, and it usually refers to, you know, people who are inadvertently being used for sort of propagandist purposes. I think it pretty clearly fits Michael Foote. He was extremely useful to the KGB and totally idiotic in allowing himself to have been used in that way. Yeah, parenthetically, what did it, I mean, a couple of years ago now, but the studio about Corbyn's contacts with, I think it was Czech intelligence, wasn't it, rather yeah. than the KGB? Yeah. But, um, that was the theory, yeah. Did you think that was a sort of agent boot type thing? or uh, I think it was an even lower grade, actually. I mean, in fact, I, I did once ask um, Oleg about, about Corbyn, and he, there was a sort of look of sort of deep disdain came on his face about whether he, you know, because Corbyn was around at that point, yeah. and he just said, no, he was not important enough. We simply wouldn't have bothered with someone like Corbyn. <laughs> it's kind of quite interesting, really. But um, So, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's in that vein. Yeah. 
Um, let's go, get back to Oleg. Um, one thing that's become curious about, you know, the man is obviously a professional liar. You know, that was his job. Did you feel in the course of researching this, meetings, that there were areas where he was massaging, omitting, that there were things, or, or even lying to himself, that there were, I mean, I think you say early on that probably his account of the, you know, speed and radicalism of his conversion was... Yeah, we all do that. We all yeah. flatten out our pasts to make, make the present seem the logical outcome of what has happened to us in our lives. Everyone does that. Yes, I mean, one of the interesting things about writing about a subject who is alive and is in a way part of the writing process. I mean, Oleg had no control over what I wrote, but he was very aware that it was going on and he read the manuscript and he, he actually made no changes to it at all. But yes, there were moments, and particularly because I had access to all the case officers, I was able to sort of set what Oleg was telling me against their accounts, which all pretty much linked up. And there were moments when I would have to say to Oleg, it, it really wasn't quite the way that you remember it. Um, you know, it, it wasn't quite like that. That said, I don't think there's, there's, I haven't come across a moment when I've ever felt that he was deliberately trying to mislead me about anything. I think, I think he, he sort of sees his past in a particular way. And, and if, you, if you tell your own story often enough and you tell it repeatedly enough, and goodness knows he's had to do that over his life, you do tend to iron out the inconsistencies, the bits that don't make sense, the sort of the bits that may not cast you in an entirely heroic light. And there are some in this book. I mean, Oleg, Oleg is a complicated man. The only area on which it became difficult to talk to Oleg was about his marriage and the decisions made around deceiving his wife, which was effectively what he had to do, even though he loved her. Well, that seems to be a kind of central human theme of the book, mm. is that, you know, can you have a, a proper marriage, even a devoted one, if, if you are not the person your wife thought you were? Well, I mean, I think Oleg's experience is that you can't. I mean, that, that actually, in the end, you probably have to make a choice. Um, he doesn't see a contradiction in it, but, but his now ex-wife Layla most undoubtedly does. Um, she feels that she was taken on a journey over which she had absolutely no control. Well, with some justice. Well, I think entirely, know. yeah. And what, I mean, how does he look back now? Because I don't think you talk about it extensively. There's this moment when the exfiltration plan, you know, the KGB rumbles him, thanks to Rick Ames, who maybe we'll talk about in a bit. But, and they have this extraordinary... Well, it's called Project Pimlico, or Operation, uh, Operation Pimlico, Pimlico yeah, yeah. to get him out of the Soviet Union, out of the clutch of the KGB, and it's kind of amazing true life spy story. Mm. But there's a point at which he has to decide, is he going to go alone, or is he going to take his family, and he decides to go alone. Yeah, I mean, it's the dark moment. It still is, I think, the dark moment of, of Oleg's soul in some ways. He, he finds it very hard to talk about. It was an agonising decision. I mean... Because MI6 had made provision to take all of them out, they were, they, they were able or, or thought they would be able to take not only Oleg and his wife, Leila, but their two little children. Um, they were going to inject the children with sleeping drugs, bundle them into uh, heat-reflective blankets and put them in the boots of um, diplomatic cars and drive them across the Finnish border. I, I always thought it was the maddest aspect of this really quite extraordinary plan. I mean, you're going to inject little children with, with sleeping drugs. I mean, they could easily have, you know, something terrible. Oh, kind of amazing that, that through the period when this was in place, you've got Oleg kind of surreptitiously weighing his children yeah. and relaying the 
Yeah. They're changes in weight so they can calibrate the so drugs. So they can calibrate the drugs. And practicing on oranges, practicing using hypodermic syringes on injecting oranges so that he would have, if he had to do it. So he was ready to do it. But at the last moment, and I don't know if it really was the last moment, and this is where, this is where the me- memory thing becomes difficult. Did Oleg ever intend to really take them all? You, I can't tell. His, but his, his, his way of explaining it is that he felt that it, he has two ways, that he felt it would simply be too dangerous. It would endanger the entire family, that the chances of it working with two little children, I mean, it's one thing for one man to throw off surveillance and, and manage to get up to this rendezvous point south of the Finnish border, for, to take on two little children and a wife. I mean, they would have been completely conspicuous. I think he just felt it was impossible to do it that way. But the secondary element, and the one that he finds really much more difficult to talk about, is, is whether he could really trust Leila. I mean, whether he would... Because she was the daughter of a KGB, KGB colonel. You know, she, she was brought up as he was within the KGB. She was a totally loyal Soviet citizen. Would she have turned him in? Would she have gone with him? He tried to test her out at one point and suggested, you know, uh, a sort of mad idea that they might try and sort of flee through the... Without admitting what he was doing, sort of saying, let's go back to Britain, um, let's just get out of here. the Turkish border. That's right. It could never have been done. But it was a a way, I think, of sort of... Well, it was clearly a way of testing to see if, if she was amenable to the idea of sort of just getting out and trying to get back to the West. Not, not, he never explained what he'd actually been doing for a decade, you know, spying for, spying for the other side. Uh, but, and would she have turned him in? Well, again, I don't know. I mean, I've interviewed Leila many times as well. Um, I've asked her that very question, you know, would you have turned, would you have told the authorities? Um, and she says, rightly actually, she says that's an impossible question to answer because you wouldn't be able to know until you were in that circumstance, until that situation. She has, on the other hand, said to me from time to time, well, I would have given him time to get away, which is a slightly different thing from saying yes. I wouldn't turn him in. So, you know, I, I think, again, memory, memory is a sort of fallible, rather malleable quality in these stories. You know? And yeah, they, they got her and the kids out. I mean, there's a sort of sad coda to it that they got her out and they you know, were reunited in the West, but it then... Just the marriage didn't last. No, I mean some of you may may remember the some of your listeners may remember the moment when when Layla was finally got out, and it became a sort of rather a symbolic moment. It was sort of seen as as the moment of sort of um, thawing of the Cold War, and there were these rather sort of gauzy photographs of them walking through Richmond Park, sort of holding hands. It wasn't like that at all. I mean, Layla came out furious, um, and and the marriage died exploded actually pretty quickly after that and it's one of the sadnesses about the story I mean this is a poignant story it's not a simple tale of black and white and good and evil we often think of these particularly spy stories as sort of moral fables in some way that they somehow are going to lead one into a kind of easy moral universe many people paid a heavy price for what happened in this story whether were the consequences were the results worth it did they justify that well I think they probably did, but there's a lot of human damage along the way, and, and it, to Oleg himself as well. He's sort of putting putting someone else's country ahead of his <laughs> ahead of his ahead of his own life. Yeah, yeah. Um, a, a detail which kind of amazed me was, I mean, maybe it's well, I'm sure it is by now well known, but that essentially the first meeting between Thatcher and Gorbachev, MI6 was writing the script for both sides. I know. It's, that is unique. I have never come across that in any other circumstance. And it came about because when Gorbachev was coming to visit Thatcher for the first time, he instructed the KGB in London to draw up a briefing note, 
a comp you know a long comprehensive detailed plan for how they were going to approach these talks and what subjects should be broached and how you know what Mrs. Thatcher might want to talk about and of course Oleg duly obliged but but the briefing note was dictated by MI6 I mean literally almost down to the word I mean it was actually slightly too close um, to, to Geoffrey Howe's own briefing um, uh, and a rather eagle-eyed KGB officer thought it sounded a little too like a British briefing note when it, when it was first sent in and it may have been one of the things that alerted the KGB but yes so, so you have an extraordinary situation where one spy is telling both sides what to say and so when Thatcher emerged saying you know this is a man we can do business with well that was because Oleg Gordievsky was, was rigging the business <laughs> Does spying still work in the same way? I mean, you know, I, I'd always sort of come up with this idea that, oh, come on, spying's not really like it is in the movies. They don't really bundle each other into boots of cars and have high-speed chases. <laughs> they don't leave, you know, bits of chewing gum on the top of lampposts in order to signal dead drops. They don't coat each other's feet in radioactive dust. All of this stuff is like spying from the telly. It's like a James Bond movie. I mean, the truth is, they did. I mean, that is exactly what they did. I mean, when you take Operation Pimlico, I mean, the actual operation itself, I mean, the, that read to me when I first heard it. It sounded exactly like something from John le Carré, which may not be accidental, actually, because spies do love reading John le Carré. I mean, they all, you know, <laughs> apart from the mafia and the police, I don't know of a group of people who are more interested in their own fictional kind of parallel world. Um, I mean, Operation Pimlico was extraordinary. I mean, Oleg had to, in order to fly his escape signal, he had to be seen on a particular corner of a particular street in Moscow at 7.30 on a Tuesday night holding a Safeway bag a big, with a big red S on it. That was going to be the signal. And then the acceptance signal from MI6 was that they would walk past him and eat a Mars bar. And that was going to be the sign that, he, that, he, <laughs> that, he, that his signal had been picked up and he was on the way out. It sounds completely Mad, but although it had a kind of internal logic, I mean, there was a logic to it, which was that Oleg had been in the West, he'd been in a country where they had Safeway bags, plastic bags were very prized in the Soviet Union, it was an extremely distinctive thing to be holding, but yet there was a logic to why he might be holding such a thing. And so, it doesn't, it, it, although it sounds like sort of bonkers spycraft, it does have a kind of a sort of sense to it. But I think you, you ask Sam whether, whether it's still like that. I, I don't think it is quite like that now. I mean, the the truth is that signals intelligence, SIGINT, um, has really pretty much not taken over from human, human intelligence. But the digital revolution means that so much of this now takes place um, in, a, in a kind of digital world. On the other hand, you, know, you still need to have human assets. You still need to be able to identify you know, when your target is using what kind of mobile phone. You, 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 you can't do it all online. But I think the balance has changed. I don't think there's quite so much, you know, chewing gum on lampposts. No, but there's, there's, one of the poignant things about Operation Pimlico, I think, is that they kept it in place and kept it updated for so many years mm. and with such care. You know, every single Tuesday night, there was somebody someone, was on that somebody street. was there on that street corner in Moscow. Whether or not Oleg was in town, I mean, exactly. that's the Even extraordinary thing, town. because they had to maintain the pattern of their behaviour. They couldn't alter what they were doing. I, they couldn't suddenly stop going down to the bread shop outside which was the sort of signal site when Oleg was not there in Moscow because then that pattern of behaviour, because they were all under surveillance the whole time, that would have been picked up. I mean, it is interesting because actually Operation Pimlico, even though I think everyone thought there was an infinitesimal chance that it would ever have to be used, was nonetheless one of the most important tasks of 
the Moscow station, of, of the, the MI6 station in, in, in Moscow. Rehearsing and being prepared for Operation Pimlico was right at the top of the list of what they were doing. And they said, even when the new Russian ambassador said, you know, you can't do this, this will embarrass me, when it was time to actually do it, they said, it's a sort of, I can't remember who it was, whoever it was, it Jeffrey Howard? No, it wouldn't be. No, it was Cabinet Secretary Robert Armstrong. But Robert said, it's a matter of honour. Yeah, we we have to do it. We have to do it. And actually, that was very much Thatcher's view as well, was that, I mean, she was, you know, she had reason to be concerned about this operation, this exfiltration, because, of course, relations with the Soviet Union were improving. She was getting on with Gorbachev. She really was, he was someone she could do business with. And suddenly, right in the middle of this, they were about to, you know, tweak the nose of the KGB in a way that it had never been tweaked before. And, and you know, the KGB was not entirely happy about it, and nor was Gorbachev. I mean, when Thatcher brought up the subject, which she repeatedly did, of the fact that Oleg's family was still in the Soviet Union and unable to come out. I mean, every time she met with Gorbachev, pretty much, she would bring up the subject, and he didn't like it at all. Um, you, know, he, you know, the KGB was extremely angry. They did not want to, to give anything on this one. Yeah. And his downfall, Aldrich Ames, you, you've got a... I mean, history has given you an almost sort of anti-Oleg, has it? <laughs> as his, well, in know, many ways. I mean, Aldrich Ames... I mean, this is one of the ironies of the whole story. As I said, you know, the, the material was being passed to MI6, and MI6 was passing it on to the CIA, and the CIA was passing it on to Reagan. But it was being done in a disguised way. I mean, that is the convention, is that you, you among allies, uh, you share information, but you are not obligated to identify where it comes from. You can say how good it is, you can say how voluminous it is, but you don't have to say who's giving it to you. Um, so uh, this is what was happening. I mean, the CIA was getting a lot of information from, from the Gordievsky case, but didn't know where it was coming from. And, and they, you can sort of see their point, really. It's not a very good look if you're the CIA director and you're getting into the Oval Office and saying, well, Mr. President, we've got some very good information here. It comes from the British, but we don't really know where it comes from. And so they set up their own investigation. They began to look into where this material seemed to be coming from, and they worked it out. They worked it out. They, they uh, took them over a year and they worked out that it had to be Oleg Gordievsky. But what they didn't know was that Aldrich Ames um, was himself contemplating going... Aldrich Ames was a very senior, long-term CIA um, operative officer. Uh, you know, he was head of the, uh, the Soviet counterintelligence section. So he knew all about Oleg. Uh, and he, of course, was, a, was about to become a KGB spy. So you've got a weird situation here where the KGB is spying on the CIA... The CIA is sort of secretly spying on MI6, and MI6 is spying on the KGB. So you've got an almost sort of perfect circle here. So yes, I mean, the day that Aldrich Ames went to the KGB in, in, in Washington and said, you know, I'm prepared to tell you everything, that very day that the telegram arrived summoning Oleg back to Moscow. And I mean, Ames is an interesting character. In many ways, a very interesting ca- character. He's still, in, he's still in prison and will remain in prison for a very How long time. How did he talk to you? No, no, he hasn't talked about this for many, many, many years. Um, I mean, his motives are, could, really could not be more different from, from Oleg's. He has absolutely no ideological impetus at all. He, he really just wanted a bigger car. Um, and and he, he said at least a dozen men to their deaths. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the butcher's bill was huge. That is one of the differences. I mean, that in a way is why I chose the title, The Spy and the Traitor, is that both these men are spies, and both in a sense are traitors to their to their respective intelligence organisations. On the other hand, there is a massive gulf between them, because partly because of the butcher's bill, as you say. 
Many, many people died as a result of, of, of Aldrich James's uh, decisions. Nobody was killed as a result of, of what Oleg did, and he was pretty insistent about that. He did not want anyone to come to any physical or other harm as a result of what he did. Um, so so there, is a, there is a considerable difference. And in the end, it's a moral one. You, you know, Oleg was serving what he thought was a noble cause. I mean, he, you know, he believed that the West was a fundamentally liberal place, and he believed that he was serving a, a regime in the K, form of the KGB that was brutal, nihilistic, and philistine. Um, Aldrich James didn't care about any of that. I mean, Aldrich James just, just was cross and wanted the money, and made a lot. But also Ames, you know, I mean, he succeeded in doing that, mm. but he was quite a crap spy, as you describe it. You know, he was a drunk, he was, you know, highly unreliable, his intelligence wasn't, you know, brilliant. And he you've got in this bad. Soviet... He was a middle-level time server, is the way I would have put it. But he got, you know, he came, got right to the top. And, you know, in, around Oleg, in, you know, the, even in London residential mm. of the KGB, you know, his boss, Gook, was a kind of hopeless figure. <laughs> and, you know, there were a lot of sort of really kind of slightly lousy, corrupt, drunk... Second-rate figures. Second-rate figures find their way quite high up in the secret world. Is that because, you know, the, the nature of the work means that you can get away with being well, not I think very it does. I think it. I think that is partly true. I mean, it works both ways. You also get some extraordinary people coming through the intelligence service who, who you know, who sort of rise to the top. But, yeah, I mean, these, these mistakes are made. I mean, are they mistakes? Are they a function of the fact that if you have a large bureau sprawling over resourced bureaucracy like that that is operating entirely unaccountably or almost entirely unaccountably but in a hierarchical way are you going to are you going to get sort of duds coming to the surface yeah i mean i think that's that's exactly how it works and it happens on all sides i mean the bettany case the michael bettany case um which is of course central to the Oleg Gordievsky case michael bettany was an mi5 officer who went rogue effectively i mean he decided that he wanted to um, pass what he knew on to the to the to the Soviets to the KGB, but he should never have been allowed in, in in anywhere near the security service. I mean, he was clearly a monumental security risk from the moment he was he was recruited. So you know, you, the mistakes are fascinating, and in some ways quite funny, but they're they're also pretty serious. Yeah. How does Oleg see things now? I mean, you know, obviously he's an interested observer of. Anglo-Russian relations. <laughs> I'll say. Um, I mean, completely. In a funny way, it's come full circle for Oleg, I would say, because, I mean, when he first came, when he first arrived in Britain, he was something of a celebrity. I mean, he was sort of taken around the various intelligence services around the world. He was he was able to give the inside skinny on exactly how the KGB operated, and that was hugely valuable. When, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, his value, if you like, dipped. Very suddenly, he, he, you know, he, I think he found it very difficult. He, you know, the moment came when his former enemies were suddenly talking to his, you know, to his former allies. And that, he, that, he, did, he didn't like that at all. And he, to his credit, he kept saying, even at the time, Russia has not changed as much as you all think it has. You know, the, the KGB hasn't suddenly become cuddly. Um, it's all still going on. And goodness knows, it turns out he was right. Um, so I think he feels that really the modern... Russian regime, the Putin world, is a kind of continuation of the system that he was battling in the 1960s and 70s and, and early 80s. You know, he, I've heard him refer repeatedly to, to Russia as a KGB state, you know, in, in its current incarnation. So I think he feels in some ways vindicated by, by the, way history, the way history has developed.
And does he feel, I mean, even as a result of this book, but obviously as a result of Putin's ascendancy, under threat still? I mean, is, his, is he sort of day-to-day... I mean, he lives under an alias. He lives under an alias. He's protected. He's under 24-hour guard. He can't leave the house. He's still in the same safe house he's been, gosh, for 30 years now. You know, so he's he lives a very odd kind of life. I mean, he is in a way. He literally doesn't leave the house. He does not leave the house alone. No, No. he 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 cannot. You know, he's he he and and the electronic surveillance is intense. None of his neighbours have a clue who he is. Um, So I mean, you've probably photographed him in this book. I mean. Surely yes, some of his neighbours, if he's been there for 30 years, some of his neighbours must have put together, there's this guy next door, he's got, you know, people hanging around a well, lot of the time. he has very burly carers, put it that way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look, I, maybe some of them have twigged. I, I, I don't get the impression they have. I mean, the security's been very carefully done. Um, so what kind of a life does he live? A very odd one, really. I mean, it's very solitary. He still is in contact with... Lots of his former colleagues and case officers and so on, they come and visit him regularly. But he doesn't see very many other people. He spends a lot of time listening to classical music and reading. Uh, he's always was quite a solitary figure, Oleg, in many ways. You know, he's, his decisions were made on his own. You know, he, he, he lives very much inside his own kind of, his own universe. But I think he's, I've never heard him express a single word of regret for what he did or what happened. I think he feels that what he did was the right thing to do. And I think he was right. I think he was right. Although I think he does feel that the book has sort of vindicated him in some ways, that it has told his story in a broader context than he was able to do himself. Um, and that it's, you know, it is, a, I hope, a proper testament. Yeah, he's play- he plainly loved it. I mean, you put in the afterword of the paperback edition you know, that his, his review he just wrote and said it was absolutely flawless. Yes. Which I think as an author, you'd be a mixed compliment for yes, the person you're writing about right. objectively. It's rather, I, yes, and it wasn't, I, I don't know that, it, I think he was probably being very kind about it. The, the one bit that he didn't like very much was um, he thought I'd been much too nice to his ex-wife. Okay, are they still on kind of no speakers? No speaks. No speaks. Does he have a good relationship with his daughters? No, he doesn't see them either, I'm afraid. No, I mean, he is, he is completely, you know, sundered from his, from his, from his blood family. I should say you do mention music as one of his consolations. I think, you know, in this book, in some ways, the bravest thing you did, um, and I'm sure your publishers tried to talk you out of it, was you quoted two full verses from Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms. <laughs> Anyone who knows about permissions for lyrics, did that... Full permission Arnold, like, from... Full from, permission. From Mark Knopfler, yeah. Who's actually... Think, for very, free? Yeah. Very keen... God. I shouldn't say that, But very keen to run it. Very keen. I think he was rather proud, actually. This is the moment when... They are the exfiltration team, the two MI6 cars are making their way to the Finnish border and they have absolutely no idea whether it's going to work. And they, they're pretty sure they're not going to get out of it. You know, they're going to be captured and arrested and so on. And they play um, Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms, that rather wonderful sort of haunting, haunting song. Um, and it became, I think, for, for them a sort of anthem of, of what had happened. And the, and the words turned out to be extraordinarily sort of appropriate to what they're to what they're seeing and what they're doing at the time. But, but Knopfler couldn't have been more, more, uh, more generous about it. He said, yeah, no, that sounds great. I think he was rather fascinated by the idea. He's a bit of a, he's a, bit of a uh, historian himself. I think he was rather fascinated by the idea that his, his words had played a part in this spy story. Well, it is kind of, there is a sort of playlist that goes, you know, there's almost a sort of Spotify playlist that goes through this. You know, well, there is, and of course, the great bar. moment when he gets out, when he's still in the boot of the car and they've got him through the border and they're, they get there on the other side and, and the, the MI6 officer puts a cassette tape 
into the cassette player and cranks it up to full volume. And of course, it's, it's Sibelius's Finlandia, and it's a signal to Oleg in the boot that he's out and that he's safe. Yeah. And uh, earlier on, what, what was it they were playing? That he, he was practically like, take me back to the Lubyanka. No, um, no it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was Dr. Hook. <laughs> he couldn't bear the kind of schmaltzy pop music that they were, they were sort of playing as he was going through Russia. Um, only 16 they were playing by Dr. Hook. Even now, a sort of curled lip comes on to Ehrlich when that, when that subject comes up. Cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah, yeah. Ben McIntyre, thank you very much. Been a great pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.